Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called One Free Lesson, written by Shane Watson. Andre started the morning of his 80th birthday, the same way he started most of his mornings. He dressed, made sure his keys were in his pocket, grabbed his cane, and walked the mile to the cemetery, where he sat in silence, leaning on his wife's headstone. Rather than heading straight home for some breakfast, however, he decided to treat himself. He called the bus into the town, free for all riders over 60. The drivers hadn't asked for his ID in the last five years. Once in the shopping area around the bus depot, he walked past a chain diner advertising all the senior discounts and went to a locally owned diner that connected to a bar that would open in a few hours. The bar and diner were known as seedy by some, as the only neutral ground in which to conduct business by others. Andre chose a booth in the corner, where he had a view of the diner and entry and the connecting door to the bar. He sat at the outside edge of the bench seat, resting his cane next to him and adjusted his belt. He waved off the menu offered by the young woman waiting at the tables. I will have a half-portion chicken fried steak with a sourdough toast, black coffee and water, please. I'll get that started for you to right away, sir, she said. Andre hadn't been in the diner in at least a decade, but it seemed that nothing had changed, beyond the grime being more deeply ground into the linoleum tiles and, of course, the staff. They were all too young to have worked anywhere back then. The steak was all unchanged, with paprika in the sausage milk gravy, and the hash browns cooked right to the edge of burnt without going over. The sourdough was different, or he thought it was, at least. He could have just been remembering as it more sour than it was. He took his time with the meal, watching the other diners come and go. He recognized most of them, not as individuals, but as players in the world from which he had retired. He didn't pay much attention to the ones that he could pick out easily by their clothing or behavior, but focused more on the ones who left him wondering. Anyone he could suss out at a glance was not likely to be a threat, but those that struck him as being a civilian he paid closer attention to. It wasn't an attempt at surveillance, just noticing things, as he'd done all of his life. The guy in the courier windbreaker with the backpack slung to allow quick access. There was something long in the backpack, and he'd left the courier pouch on the bike outside. He was too obvious. The young woman that parked a motorcycle out in front came in, calling for eggs, toast, and coffee, though. He couldn't tell for sure. To Andre, she stuck out by not sticking out. Anywhere other than here, she'd blend right in, but she seemed too comfortable for a civilian in this environment. It meant either that she was oblivious or very good. He kept a sliver of his attention on her, as the courier grabbed the to-go bag and dropped it into his backpack when Andre saw the pistol grip of the short shotgun. The motorcycle girl talked with the waitress for a moment before looking around the diner. The crowd had been building and there were no empty tables. She approached his booth. Excuse me, sir. May I join you? She asked. Andre nodded and she sat in the center of the bench opposite him. Again, she was either oblivious or confident enough in her abilities to position herself in a less than optimal position. She set her helmet on the table next to her. Her food arrived a moment later, and she thanked the waitress before turning her attention to him. Thanks for letting me sit here. My name is Emily, she said. Andre nodded. Nice to meet you, young lady. What brings you here? Cheap breakfast. 
My roommate works here, and they let me park my bike out front so nobody will mess with it. What about you? Good chicken fried steak. Thought I'd treat myself. He camped his left hand under the table as he ate with his right. He took time in between bites. He was in no rush. Emily wolfed down her eggs and went back to making conversation while she took her time with the toast and coffee. What did you used to do, or still do, uh, for work? After Vietnam, he said. I had enough of the army and just bounced around from job to job. You? Mechanic, she said, at the bike shop. She could mean exactly what she said, or it could be a euphemism. The bike shop could be exactly that, or have something to do with the outlaw bikers that had moved into town 20 years earlier. While he was thinking about the bikers, one of them walked in, a giant of a man openly wearing his colors, with a 1% patch on his chest. He waved at the waitress and walked straight for Andre's booth, where he pushed the woman to the inside of the bench and sat beside her. Imagine that, he said. I get to meet the left hand of the Nikolov family in the flesh. There is no such thing, Andre said, as the Nikolov family or any left hand. Don't be so modest, the biker said. Just because Nico's gone doesn't mean that you are... Adam B. Fang is just an old Vietnam vet having breakfast, Emily said. Sorry, sister, but he used to be the number one trigger man of all the Russian mob around here. Before he got rid of them and took over, Fang leaned forward. Now he's just a washed up old man. Andre took a sip of his coffee. You at least got part of that right. I am just an old man. Andre's trigger Petrenko. Fang said, leaning back. I owe you for at least half a dozen brothers that you did back in 02. You was evolved even then. You must be mistaken, he said. I think any old man you went into a war with 20 years ago would be dead by now. I should beat you to death raw here. I have no doubt that you could do that, Andre said. But if I am who you think I am, why would I let you get close enough to... Fang whipped out a knife and started to rise when a pop-like sound firecracker rang out and he stopped, falling back into his seat, the knife dropping to the table where Andre swept it onto the floor. Andre reached into his pocket, pulled out a hundred-dollar bill and placed it on his plate. Fang was cursing and groaning while Emily was doing her best stuff, napkins against the wound to stop the bleeding. Andre noted that no one in the diner wanted to get involved, which was all the better. That son is a gut shot. Hurts like hell. I know. You're going to be a little grey there. What you're feeling now is shock. You, you'll survive, most likely. If you or any of your brothers come at me again, you won't. Understand? Fang responded, but only with more curses and groans. I'll take that as a yes, he said, holstering the suppressed pistol that he'd helped on his lap while he ate and grabbed his cane. This is your one real lesson, son. Fear the old man in a profession where men die young. End of story. Story number two. The price written by In Babylon, they wept. Mithrian's hands were thick-boned and knotted with scars, unfit for tools for anything delicate. Yet, they were all he had, so he traded patience for true dexterity. Where humans had the skill and elves had grace, dwarves had time. His fingers carefully tugged and knotted fabrics apart, blanket 
by blanket, twist by twist. The bundle came undone until at last an infant lay on the war table. It was human, unmistakably so, round ears peeking through the halo of blonde hair. It reached forward with tiny hands and wrapped all ten of its fingers around the dwarf's thumb, both its index fingers still lingering a full inch from meeting. Mithrian looked down at him with true warmth. Then he looked back up at the elves and gave the command, Kill it! No one at the table moved. The circle of owls looked from the child to him, then back to their credit. The tension was more born of confusion than moral wavering. They knew they would not do it. They knew that they would not do it. They did not know why they were being asked. Salathian, the elder, spoke. No, he replied. Mithrian nodded. The refusal was not merely hopeful. It had been expected. Thus is why you will not win. The table sat in contemplative silence. Salathian, bravest amongst the elves, most forward, most dwarf, spoke again. Because we will not murder an infant. Because this infant is the son of Agamedes. He is the last king of the Hinterlands. Ah, humans grow old quickly. In twenty-five years he will be a man, and he will start a war just like the one you are fighting today. A war suspiciously similar to the one you fought twenty-five years ago. The words were calm. But he watched the general's hands closely. Even a twitch towards the belt knife would be enough to betray temptation. Yet each hand remained perfectly still. There was a short pulse of shame in him. Envy. When he'd had this conversation with his own war council at those centuries ago, there had been several who considered it, who had considered degrading themselves for something as empty as war. You will not win the war, you could, but you see the cost now, and you know it is too high. You want to honor your treaties, your duties, your integrity, but you know the word for that which lacks soul but keeps contracts. You fought them with me in the deepest, darkest depths of stone. Salathan had gone white. He knew he'd been so focused on winning this war that he failed to look ahead to the next, and the next, and the next. The cycle stood out to him, infinite and spiraling. He froze at the thought of walking down into the abyss. Nah, I could raise him. I could try and break the cycle. I he would learn from another human, another infant that grows to manhood. He will learn... And he will burn your house and throne. Do you think that I am so wise as to see the future without having lived the past? Whatever cleverness you will suggest, I have tried. I fought ten generations of warriors on the same field before I realized I had three options. To burn my soul, to trap myself in endless war, or to lose. So I lost. His voice cracked at the last three words. The infant had begun to fuss over the cold, and he went to work swaddling it again. He made his point. Now it was time to take the princeling home. But as his hands made their slow work, he gave his final warning. You did not know when you started this, and you would not have listened if I had told you. But you know now, and if I meet you in the deepest depths, I will know what sent you here. The only pity you'll find from me 
is a second death. He finished his work in silence, leaving as he came. The quiet lasted long after. End of story. Why We Can't Keep Human Wills, written by Captain Candy. I let out a deep breath and grabbed my nose equivalent while shaking my head. Every decade or so, this happens. A new senator was elected by a species into the council, and a new member wants to prove the point. So they do research and learn who the weakest race is. The alleged weakest race is. They find the human. Stop digging when they read the first three paragraphs about how they are a merchant species who focuses on exploration and the sale of fast foods and culture. I wish that they would read all the rest of the damned paper. In fact, that sounds like a great idea. Senator Dada, why humans specifically? Please do enlighten me. Head Counselor, my research has led me to believe that the humans are a minor race, that while they sell some basic fast foods and mildly entertaining media, they offer us nothing else. We should take their planets and make proper use of them ourselves, instead of turning them into hubs of gluttony and sloth. I... Oh, that's quite enough, Senator. I'm guessing your research included the overview paper on the race for a rough breakdown... I, uh, 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 yes, Head Counselor. I did read through that paper as part of my research. It said that, again, Senator, that is all I need. I'm guessing you only read what? The first five paragraphs, if you were feeling energetic. Let me be blunt. You are not the first to push for taking the humans' territories. They have a lot of resources, are low tech level, and are not exactly military. But please bring up the article again for me and read from the tenth paragraph for the council. I, uh, I, uh, head counselor, this is highly unprofessional. Oh, shut the feck up, Senator. Look, my species lives for 3,000 years and I'm sick of every decade a little upstart like you pushes some same damn issues. Each and every one of you reads a little bit into the same damned papers and moves on to the next and the next. It's exhausting to listen to the same drivel every decade without failure. Now read the damn paper, and while you do, I'll organize a vote that in the future, every senator who doesn't do the full research for such things will be fired and sent back to their home planet dishonorably. Now, uh, start reading. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> While the humans are, are not military race and prefer to focus on finding new food sources and ways to entertain not only themselves but the rest of the galaxy, they can in fact become a voracious threat. They have what they call a wartime economy that will more often than not see every man, woman and able-bodied teen fight the invaders uh, willingly. Ah, uh, head counselor, is that this is a... Uh, why is this not mentioned sooner in the paperwork? Senator, you're far from the most important information, you know. But I can see all the color is drained from your face now that I've forced you to read the documentation in full. Let me go over some key points with you, though. Firstly, there is the Geneva Convention, which is part of why the human's military seems weak. They limit themselves in wars, things like bioweapons, chemical warfare are prohibited. 
Radiation-based weapons are frowned upon, unless high-powered enough to goify people. Weapons that take too long to kill are impossible to survive at the same time are strictly banned to them. Civilians are absolutely off-limits to kill in wartime. Prisoners of war are to be well-fed, sheltered, and not tortured for information. The humans are also a very fractious species, and more often than not are fighting themselves for stupid reasons. But the instant an outside force attacks them, they unify into a war machine that borders on monstrous. If they do not unify, then you had better pray to every god you have ever heard of, whether you believe in them or not, that the detachment you sent to attack them follows this Geneva Convention. If you don't follow and abide by it, the humans stop abiding by it as well. They have been no less than seven races made extinct because they mocked these wartime rules. Each and every one of them died screaming, Senator. Each and every last one. Now, let's say you follow their rules and manage to beat their unified war machine. Well, you won't get a single human planet, ever. One race, mine in fact, managed to do just that. And do you know what happened when we managed to capture a human planet and deport 99% of the humans off the damned rock? Well, I will tell you. The remaining humans on the world detonated an antimatter bomb in the core of the planet and erased the entire fracking thing from reality. That ended the war right there and then. And when we asked the humans why they would blow up a planet they lost, do you know what they said? The exact words were, Because it's ours, we claimed it. We terraformed it. We developed it. And we'll be damned if we let someone else have what we put so much work into. If we can't have it, then nobody gets it. Period. In short, it's ours, and you can't have it. This wasn't the last time someone went to war with them. And most of the people who did after went on extermination wars against humans. We lost 18 more races in the span of five years, Senator. Each and every single one of them died screaming. The document goes over all of that in painstaking detail. But every ten years without fail, one of you inept, lazy, entitled upstarts skims the top and sees humans are weak and tries to push the council to war with them to promote yourselves up and to take a shortcut to a higher position. If the council went to war with the humans, there would be no council, Senator. So please, in the future, you do your due diligence and read the whole goddamn paper. Now then, on to the vote mandating that all Senate members read all relevant documents to research areas or political issues in their entirety. End of story. Story number two. Schrodinger's Poison, written by Marilyn of Many. Mending the spaceship's extra cognate was difficult. Too many strands. I held a couple in my teeth while both hands struggled with the rest, and it wasn't enough. I was considering getting my feet involved, oh, or maybe a crewmate, when I heard an excited voices in the hallway. Welcome back. Find anything good? Yes, I've met someone who wanted the expired heat packs. 
What? Seriously? You owe me a shroomstick. Pay up. Good-natured grumbling followed. I was pretty sure these were the Frillian twins, who looked like fishy bodybuilders with a fashion sense that always caught me off guard. Either drapey veils and skirts matching their own flowy fins, or strategically placed stretchy bands, no middle ground, and they were very competitive. What did they even want with the old heat packs? You told them that they were expired, right? Of course I did. You think that I would cheat like that? The indignant one was blip. I was pretty sure. The female of the pair, or the closest thing to female, since their species seemed to handle gender a little differently than humans did. Her brother was Blop. Ugh, of course not, he admitted. What are they going to use them for, though? Something about separating the components and pulling them into other uses. But look what I got in trade. Human food that's not expired. I looked up at that, mouth still full of cords. But of course the cargo bay door blocked my view. I listened, though. What kind of is a... Ah, get it away! What? Why? I froze, just as curious. Do you know how many humans that stuff kills every cycle? What are you talking about? Blup demanded. It's food. It says so right here. Don't touch me with it. Put it into the contaminated chamber and get yourself scanned for poison. I wove quickly, rushing to finish so I didn't lose my place. We needed all of the nets and we hadn't been able to get a new one at the space station. This was important, but oh man, what do they have out there? Humans are omnivorous who eat anything. How is this deadly? Blip was demanding when a new voice arrived. Oh, what's the shouting? Asked Paint, her usual cheer dampened by worry. I could just picture her with hands clasped anxiously and her scaly tail held stiff. The very picture of a lizard-like concern. That's poison, it's food. Poisonous food! Any hopes that head of paint calming things down was dashed when she asked for the closer look, then slammed into the cargo bay door with a panic to jump back. I've heard of that. It killed an ambassador. See, I told you. We need to get them both scanned, and maybe me too, paint said, hyperventilating already. Maybe the whole ship. Is it airborne? Captain, Captain! I threw the net on the floor and lunged for the door button. It banged open and startled paint even more. She spun from where she'd been about to dash off in a streak of orange scales. What is it? I demanded, making the pair of frillions back up a step. I'd probably look like some unhinged demon standing out of the bay like that. They were both wearing veritable clouds of neon green silks, so the surprise was at least a little bit mutual. Blip howled a jar over her shoulder, clearly torn between showing me the label and keeping it at a safe distance. I squinted, expecting alcohol or some unregulated drug. Spaceman spiffs chunky peanut butter, said the label. I stared for a long moment while everyone was silent. Then, I'm afraid, I startled them by all bursting into laughter. <laughs> oh, it's not poisonous, I managed to say. But he killed an ambassador, Paint objected. I read the purport. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to hear that, I said, leaning against the wall. Uh, the ambassador was just allergic to peanuts. It took a bit of explaining, and I had to go over it all again when Captain Sunlight came running up. But I did get things settled. I can't believe there are humans allergic to food, Blip said. I've heard of overreactions to mild toxins and venoms, but really, food uh, from your own planet? Yep, I said putting out a hand for the peanut butter. Not me, though. I like peanuts. The jar was a hefty one, manufactured for long voyages. 
We can still scan it through the medical systems, just in case one of you guys might react badly to it, but it's not officially toxic. Well, that's good to hear, Captain Sunlight said, standing as tall as a little lizardly frame allowed. How about you do that now, and anyone who came in contact with, with goes along? Blip and Blop agreed immediately, not needing Paint's waving hands to usher us all down the hall. I looked over my shoulder at Paint as I walked. Once you get everybody checked out, you should try some. It's good on toast. Toasted what? Paint asked, still shooing away. Bread. No, no, she said. I heard about that pizza you talked people into eating on Kemner's ship. Uh, some of them liked it, I objected. Not Bob Burt. Uh, no, not Bob Burt, I admitted. But this is totally different. Thanks for getting it, Blip. I turned to wave the jar at the frillion in the lead. My pleasure, she said, and it almost sounded like she meant it. Want to try some once it's safe? No, 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 I don't. Ah, your loss. End of story. Human Decency, written by John Galt. They didn't use plates, wipe their boots, clean up their trash, and what's worse, they didn't set his floor on fire. Six cryptis mopped tight while staring at the flame. He had tried sweeping around the camp, but the customers didn't like that. They eventually rose and started to leave. They hadn't said a word to him or bought anything. Did you enjoy your stay at Shop Mart? said Six. What? I know the store isn't the best, but uh, did you enjoy your stay? Uh, sure, he said, before they started packing up and leaving. Six followed them out. He wanted to ask again if they enjoyed their stay, but he had already done it once. He watched them as they grew smaller and smaller down the muddy, broken roads. The street sweeper had not been there in two weeks. Two weeks! He was going to have a lot of work to do when he got back. Part of Six wanted to ease the street sweeper's workload by cleaning in front of his store, but whenever his foot tried to pass over the threshold, he balked, dizzy and off balance, and would stumble back. Six had watched his last customers long enough. There was work to do. He put out the fire before it spread any further, chased little pieces of litter, and cleaned up their food scraps from the tiles. Three and nine watched him as he worked, their heads tracking him left and right, but they were busy doing nothing and didn't lift a finger to help. Three followed six, which was somewhat useful. Six could hang spare garbage bags filled with broken glass and shattered tiles off his shoulders, and it halved the amount of trips he needed to do. The bins were full. Binbot was also slacking, so Six left the bags beside the dumpster. Six turned to Three. Did you enjoy your stay at Shop Mart? He knew Three wouldn't answer, and he didn't, but he liked to think that Three enjoyed himself, albeit silently. It had been a long time since they had a customer. He cleaned the slowly building debris, humming to himself, as he hauled lumps of concrete only for them to rip through the bags. He had to carry them outside along with the sheet metal and insulation. Mopping was getting harder by the day. There would be new cracks and the endless ash that rained down. The moment his mop touched that ash, it would turn to a long black smears and he would need to fill his bucket from another puddle. He found nine under a pile of rubble. He hadn't moved since the customers left and, though he was dented and broken, he still clung to his mop with all his might. Six couldn't fix nine, and three wouldn't help. Six didn't know how to clean, though, so he cleaned nine as best he could, and sat with him in the maintenance room. Three, uh, 
If maintenance shows up, make sure they do get to nine first. We both need a fix, but nine needs it more, said Six. Three stared at him, as he always does, but then he turned, his head tracking from six to nine and then back. He dropped his mop and turned around. Seeing the state of nine must have snapped him out of it. This is what happens when the store is in such a state. It's a hazard. He followed three out. Yes, there was work to do, but this was a momentous occasion. He followed three down the main hall to the front doors. Three, wait, said Six. Three stopped. He turned slowly to Six, his eyes looking over the store before he turned and walked away through the rivers of mud, growing smaller and smaller in the distance. Six wanted to follow, to try and talk him into returning, but his feet couldn't leave the store, and there was work to do. Work that wasn't going away while he stood there, watching Three leave him. Did... uh... You enjoy your stay? asked Six. How is it going to tell Nine? The city was a ruin. Buildings had collapsed. The power and water was gone. The rubbish was a mountain of rubble. Nobody was doing their jobs anymore. He turned back to the store. He was fading too. The shops were only chest-high walls. He didn't know how to clean the absence of a roof. How do you clean smoke? Nobody had told him how. He scowled at the intangible filth. Three hadn't been helping, just following him around, but somehow Six knew the work would be harder without him. He clung to his mop tight. How long until it broke too? He stood paralyzed. The floors were clean. The chest-high walls were clean. The broken glass was clean. But the store was broken. He would never get customers if it looked like this. But the things that were still messy, he didn't know how to clean. He turned back around looking out of his store to the horizon. Could he leave? There was movement. People. There were customers. Hundreds of people all walked up the streets towards him. They were not discouraged by the red sky or the mud, and they walked straight towards Shop Mart, the best place for all your needs. They were not Nartics, but Six didn't care. They were customers. Hello, shouted Six, causing the people to stop moving. They started to scatter about the street hiding behind walls and corners. Some crouched or laid down. Hello, they called back after a while. Are you customers? Who's asking? Six, are you customers? There was a moment of quiet before they answered. Yes. Five of them walked towards Six, still pointing their tools, but the one at the front lowered his. Can we walk through here? Oh, of course. All are welcome at Shop Mart. Please, wipe your feet. No smoking inside the premises. Six stood, watching the soldiers flick away cigarette butts and pull their boots off, carrying them across the tiled floor, talking about how nice it was to let their socks dry. Some of them even sat down. Six carried around a bag and they all put their food wrappers inside. Some of them lit cigarettes, but quickly put them out when nudged by the other customers. He followed them to the far side, where they sat and put their boots back on. Now I know the store doesn't look as good as it used to, and that its shops are empty, but did you enjoy your stay at Shopmark? said Six. He seemed confused by the question, but the non-Nartics might not be used to their shops. Yes, Six, you've done a surprisingly good job, considering it's a war zone. We had a wonderful time at your store. Thank you. Do you know when more customers might be here? Uh, I'm sorry, Six, sir. There won't be more customers. He frowned and nodded back towards the floors. It does look very clean, though. Six stood for a long moment, holding his mop, stuck in place, watching his customers leave happy. 
He'd done a surprisingly good job, but there were no more customers. No one to see his flaws. He walked to Nine and leaned down, pulling the broken robot's body over his shoulder. I'm sorry, Nine. I know you can't hear me, but nobody is coming to fix you. And I wanted to tell you before I break, too. He carried Nine to the door, pointing to the distance. Over there are customers, and they liked the store. I'm sorry for picking you up, but I didn't want you staying in a broken closet forever, he said. He looked down at the edge of the tiles, seeing the place had broken off where the ground had given way. He crouched down, picking up a shard of tile. He shouldered Nine's heavy weight and stared at the shard. This is my store. This is part of my store. I am inside my store. His feet pounded through the mud, pushing him as fast as he could run. This is my store, Nine. We are still inside our store and it is clean and customers like it. He stumbled but caught his footing. He couldn't look away from the tile for more than a moment. He would check to see where he would step, but looking made him woozy. I'm inside my store, he said. Contact! I'm inside my store. Drones on approach, carrying payload. Stop! I am inside my store. Six spun, his body tumbling to the ground. His arm wouldn't work and Nine was laying on his back ahead of him. Nine, we can't stay here, said Six. He was outside. He was... Uh, he looked at the shard of the store, then at Nine, then his broken arm. He closed his eyes tight and eased down his store, dragging his eyes away from its clean floor and reaching out to Nine, pulling the cleaner's arm over his shoulder and heaving up his weight. He couldn't run, but the dizziness started to fade. It is okay, Nine. We are inside shop, Mart, he said. Six, what are you doing? Six looked up. It was the customer. Nine is broken, and so am I. Can you fix him, then me, said Six. The soldier looked over at Six, then up at the cleaner, pulled over his shoulder. We have a sparky back at the base. And, uh, uh, does the base need cleaning, and uh, can I call it shop, Bart, said Six. The customer smiled and nodded. No problem. Do you need a hand carrying Nine? He isn't heavy. He's the same as me. End of story. They never replied. Written by Captain Keys, one, two, three. Based on the film, without warning. They never replied. This is the United Terran Coalition, Harry Cruiser, Baltimore, on the planet Earth. We are sending greetings to all peace-loving beings in the galaxy. The humanoid Thriffin ambassador stopped struggling and looked up the view screen. Repeat, this is the United Terran Coalition, Cruiser, Baltimore. We wish you everything good from our planet. It is our procedure to meet first contact with communication of your own. We mean no harm. The insectoid captain nodded to the communications officer. This is an interplanetary race, Starship Nostalgia. Do you understand this transmission? The humans never replied. This was the first exchange between the Federation of Interplanetary Races and the United Terran Coalition. The Federation warship had been summoned to gather information on the war between the Thruvian Republic and the Coalition. The Coalition had appeared out of nowhere on the edge of Thruvian Republic and immediately opened fire. The Thruvian immediately demanded military action from the Federation, but they weren't a highly thought-of nation and there were other businesses to attend to. War was a dirty business after all, and they'd just come out of one ten years before. The Coalition wasn't invading anyone else anyway. What was the big deal? 
Nevertheless, they did have a job to do, and the nostalgia's battle group was dispatched to investigate. The Thriven had lost a few colonies, after all, and they needed to be sure that there weren't any sapient rights abuses. They'd met with a Thriven government official, who briefed them on the situation. Not that it was very useful. In the words of the nostalgia's alt-level captain, they lie through their teeth as their way of greeting. The Federation weren't saints by any means, but no one particularly liked the Thriven. There was little they could do about them, though. They had a potent fleet, and no one felt like dealing with them. It would cost too much. Even with a few bits of truth that could be gained from the Thrivens were valuable, though. Truth be told, nobody knew anything about the Coalition except the message they sent to the first Thriven Croft to meet them. We are the Terran Coalition, the people of Earth greet you. Humanity has a message for you. If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favors nor your hate. They'd taken three colonies by the time the nostalgia had made it to the Thriven border. Their orders had changed. They were to intervene and immediately put an end to the war. The only Thriven military vessel to escape the initial carnage returned to base soon after the nostalgia arrived. It delivered a second and final message. Humanity has a message for you. To beguile the time, look like the time. Bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. The Thriven ambassador told them the Terrans were irrational and refused all communications. They didn't know them. They didn't know what they looked like. They were strange in their behavior. Not too unusual, just little note. They didn't bomb or invade the plants they took. They simply destroyed or occupied the orbital equipment and moved on. A fleet remained to guard each colony. Captain Ernot, the nostalgia's commander, was thankful for that. Fear wasn't a war crime after all. It saved the paperwork. He brought his battlecruiser to confront the nearest Terran flotilla he could find to approach them as an independent party and find out what was going on. That certainly ruffled the Thriven's feathers, if they had any. The bipeds were ugly things, mammalians without scales, feathers, or exoskeletons. Ornit never understood how they made do without these races' mandibles. He thought with some idle amusement that if they looked anything like his people, perhaps these humans were just disgusted by the Thriven. Curiously, the Thriven ambassador grew more and more nervous the closer the ships came to the human territory. Orna knew the Thriven were hiding something. They always were. But this was the first time he'd seen one concerned rather than arrogant. He'd been in a fit when they'd come into system, and he demanded that they open fire when they got into communications range. And then, the ambassador froze, when that alien voice crackled from the speakers. Ornot spoke to the Baltimore and opened dialogue. The humans were not willing to pull out of Thriven territory, naturally. They were surprisingly gentle with the Federation ship, despite their initial messages. Ornot wondered if they'd realized the depth of their mistake, or were creating a false sense of security. There were more details that Ornot found curious. The humans began with a force of cruisers and destroyers. Their names weren't that unusual for any race. But there was something about them. Baltimore, Harbin, and Perm for the cruisers, Whitaker and Mandel for the destroyers. Cities and people. 
The humans were extremely even-handed with the Federation. They went out of their way to be kind. Nothing like the monsters that they were made out to be by the Thriven. It was a surprise when it was found that the humans looked very similar to the Thriven. Or not, would have thought that any biped humanoids, with their typical revulsion of two bugs, would despise the Altavo. But why did they hate the Thriven so much? They made many concessions to the Federation in their opening meeting, but they never explained that. I got to the point during their initial face-to-face -face diplomatic meeting. The captain asked their ambassador bluntly, Why do you hate the Thriven? What did they ever do to you? The human ambassador fixed the quadruped with smoldering gaze. From his small, immobile eyes, We're at war. Yes, but why? Ask them. Ornot got only a bewildered answer from the Thriven ambassador. The human's gaze only worsened. We do not quarrel with the Federation. We are kind to everyone we contact. So you have the chance we never did. But we will not stop hunting them until their home world falls. The, the, the chance you never did, Ornot asked. What is this about? You didn't communicate. You didn't hail them. You just sent cryptic messages. We've been at war for two hundred years. But you said you only made it to space fifty years ago. The human nodded. I did. He placed a data recorder on the desk. All human representatives in the room turned to look. A scratchy yet presentable audio recording played. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. We step out of our solar system into the universe, seeking only peace and friendship. To teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate. We know full well that our planet and all of its inhabitants are but a small part of the immense universe that surrounds us. And it is with humility and hope that we take this step. The human smiled strangely. It was some sort of pleasant memory. Then, a terrible squeal came through the speakers. Their voices were different, recorded with another sort of microphone. There was no formality. There was no nothing but impromptu statements. Desperate statements. Panicked voices washed over one another. Reading hundreds of large objects, too many to track. This is Houston. Houston, do you read? London, do you copy? <sighs> we're going to try and stay on the air, but we've detected impacts in major cities. Washington, come in. St. Louis. St. Louis, come in. This is Houston. Do you copy? Baltimore. This is Houston Control. Come in, please. Canaveral. This is Houston. Do you read? Come in, please. More speakers entered the channel. It was stitched together from different sources. Some read off numbers and tracking data. Others reported observations. And some just called for help. In a litany of languages. London. Terrible devastation. Reports Berlin has been destroyed. Obliterated. Obliterated. Washington, please come in. This is Nimitz. We just saw a total loss of energy. The recorder hissed sharply, and one final voice came through. ISS, this is Mission Control. Come in, please. Where are you, Houston? Come in, please. The recorder squealed. Isn't there anyone on the air? Anyone? Isn't there anyone out there? The human ambassador pulled out an old-fashioned piece of paper. We reached out our hands. We reached out our hands in peace and friendship. 
and the first thing they did was hurl an asteroid at us. We defended ourselves when we could barely even tell that it was a ship or another asteroid, and their response was to try and take out our capitals. And when we defend ourselves, they destroy our world. Three billion died in a bombardment, and billions more followed. And we've spent centuries just getting back. He narrowed his gaze at the Thriven, and they're the ones who did it. The document was a compilation of data. It showed an object in a high orbit above the planet with a radar scan, a variety of numbers and figures, and a photo from a telescope. The object in orbit had the same profile as a Thriven cruiser. It was old, but still similar enough to be recognized. End of story. They Cannot See It Written by Obvious AD4159 Ah, Commander Zog, how's Earth? Zog stopped midstride and turned to face the lead scientist. It was lovely. I really enjoyed my time with the Earthlings, he replied, before clearing his throat. throat) Uh, We, however, catalogued an anomaly on Earth, an entity living amongst the humans. An entity, said the scientist, pulling the commander into her office. Tell me more, please. Uh, I don't know, Monsieur D. They look like a human, but they have these anonymous powers that seem to only affect other humans. Zog sat down and continued presenting her with different images of a white male in different situations. I see. Dear, but can you clearly see him in these pictures, right? Is the scientist required? Yes, I can. All of my team can too. He can be captured by video and images. But when those images and videos are presented to a human, the human's claims that the video or picture presented to them simply doesn't show a person inside, the soldier explained, taking off his hat. Interesting. Go on, Yuli motioned. Even if the entity is present in the videos or photos with other humans or even animals, the humans shown the picture will only see the other people or animals in the picture, but never the entity, even though it is also present, sometimes even the very focal point of an image. How peculiar. It appears invisible, or at least cannot be perceived by humans on images and videos. That does not really make it a threat, the scientist rubbed her chin. Well... Uh, Apparently it can go visible on command, Zonk continued, sighing deeply and rubbing his temples. Invisible? Yuli raised her left eyebrow quizzically. Yes, the, the same effect it has on humans through images and videos. It can have in real time, in front of a live audience. My team could still see it, but for the humans, it's like the entity vanished as soon as it quickly waved its open palm in front of their face a few times. The soldier waved his right hand and palm fully in motion, in front of his face a few times, mimicking what the entity would do. Huh, Yuri said. That looks a bit silly. Uh, are you really sure it really works? Maybe the humans are just lying to you. We are certain. We tested many different humans, both in terms of gender, age, and ethnicity. The only exception to this rule are certain children who have no prior knowledge of the existence of the entity and humans with a specific mental-slash-development disability known as Down Syndrome. For some reason, those humans really like the entity, and the entity is pretty cool with them in return. They sometimes even take pictures together. Zog pulled out a few more holographic photos to show them to the scientist. I see. And the other humans know it exists but can't perceive it, she asked. Correct. It would appear that the entity had a full control over its abilities and can go invisible at will. 
including on images and in videos, as if they can choose on which image it will allow the humans to see it. Well, that image is taken, he answered. Are there ways of countering or tracking it? Yuli put the photos down. Yes, according to the humans, if the entity wears a neon green or neon orange vest, it counters the entity's ability to cloak, to an extent. They claim that those articles of clothing are specifically designed to be seen, so they fully counter camouflage, Zog complained. So, if the entity wore a neon green or orange vest, it would become visible. The scientist seemed a bit confused, as she had never encountered something like this before. Well, uh, yes and no. Unlike the rest of the entity's clothing, if it is actually clothing, the vest would not be affected by the entity's ability to cloak. So according to the humans, it would look like a vest is just floating around. The soldier tried to explain the best he could without sounding absolutely insane. However, the researcher's facial expression looked she had already been considering him a bit insane. Apparently, humans are basing their camo technology on the entity, especially their camo pants. They also warp perception, but in a far lesser degree than the ability of the entity itself, which the camo tech is based on. Zog countered. So, uh, any indication as to what the entity is? Yuli asked, the story and evidence grabbing her a scientific curiosity, even if she was skeptical. The entity is a very experienced combatant and in good physical shape. That and its ability indicate that it is most likely predatory in nature, probably using strangulation, blunt force trauma, or restriction of mobility to take down its prey, Zog continued. So, the humans can never see it coming. I can see how that would be dangerous. The scientist nodded. Well, uh, not entirely. The entity seems balanced out by a secondary effect, only present when it is engaged in combat or hunting. When it's about to strike a lethal blow or take down an unsuspecting opponent, the humans present will hear auditory hallucinations of a loud male voice yelling warnings or the entity's name, like a battle cry or introduction, Zog continued. Wouldn't that make the whole invisibility kind of uh, useless? Yuli tilted her head to the side, thinking about what Zog said. Uh, I suppose so. But considering the audio hallucinations really come out of nowhere and the moment the entity is about to strike with maximum efficiency, we have come to the conclusion that it creates confusion rather than panic in the target, making an attack more successful for the entity. The soldier elaborated further. Huh. I guess hearing random yelling noises would put anyone in a state of shock, Yuli noted. Anything else I should know about this thing? It has a good chance of appearing and going into an attack when its name is about to be mentioned, or when it's being talked about slash described to other people. Though, we have no solid confirmation on that yet, Zog said nonchalantly. Yuli didn't quite catch that last part, as she began listening off the things Zog had told her. The soldier could once more confirm it. So, it can be invisible at will, both in real time and when recorder in any format. It emits a few different audio hallucinations, very loud ones, when it is near its target and about to strike. It looks like a white human male. You said his name can trigger it or something? She looked up and Zog. Wait, and his name is what exactly? And his name is John C. Rang out in the scientist's head, as out of nowhere she was tackled from her chair and onto the floor. End of story. Story number two. They didn't. Written by Sharp Werewolf 6001. Galactic date 45.512.356. 
researcher Danton's report on humans. As has been known throughout the galaxy, the Mara are a parasitic entity present in all habitable planets and the dark quadrant of our galaxy. And even some of the non-uninhabitable ones has some of the neighboring galactic empire's research stations discovered. Non-sentient entities whose hunting skills and blending prowess inevitably turn planets into barren wastelands where no civilization managed to survive. Their capacity for mimicry turning these fearsome predators indistinguishable from the prey until they were welcomed into their homes. In short, they've been categorized across the galaxy as its apex predators and the entire quadrant they live in was quarantined and later categorized as the dark for the absence of any signal coming from it. Ages ago, and to everyone's surprise and quite honestly panic, suddenly a signal was detected from deep within the dark quadrant. Everyone feared the Mara and turned sentient. No other swaths of the universe had been so thoroughly observed as the dark quadrant through the following years as more and more signals were detected and eventually decoded. And so, for the first time, we saw humans, far before they met us, and we learned they weren't the Mara we feared. Soon after, the first of their probes left their quarantine and arrived in the occupied planet and the border of the Threxian conglomerate. The entire planet, my home planet, was put under quarantine, but the Mara never arrived. A couple of years later, the first of their ships arrived with their first representative, they were met with the Thraxian diplomats, the ones whose curiosity had overcome their own sense of self-preservation. Though these diplomats learned that they called themselves human, they had been trying to find intelligent life in the universe ever since their first signals were detected, and their civilization, though marred from past conflict, had flourished to be enterprising explorers and hopefully traders. From our diplomats, they learned about the Mara. This revelation shocked the galaxy. Humans having grown and developed deep within the Mara-infested quadrants had no idea the Thraxian diplomats were talking about. With the Galactic Council's improvement and financing, the quarantine was lifted and expeditionary forces were sent to the human home planet of Dirt. Edit! Damned auto-translator! Officially with a diplomatic mission. Unofficially to study their planet and discover what made it repellent to the Mara. Geneticists, botanists, geologists, weapons experts, sociologists, psionics, and a myriad of other specialists studied their planet, their people, and even though no Mara were discovered, nothing of a notice was discovered. There was nothing that any of the thousands of planets the Mara had taken to hold didn't have in abundance. So the great galactic mystery of our generation became why did the Mara avoid their planet? Why did they not stop them from evolving into a space-faring civilization? And why did the Mara not hunt the humans? Unlike the specialists sent to study humans and their home planet, my academic field is more exotic and less practical. The stories civilizations told themselves of their darkest hours and their inexplicable. I have spent the later years of my life studying the human myths from their several past civilizations, and I've come up with an hypothesis that is both simple and terrifying. Why did the Mara avoid their planet? They didn't. End of story. The Human God, written by Captain Candy. Welcome, Mr. President. I am glad you agreed to this meeting on such short notice. Most species we contact take months, if not years, to calm down enough to actually talk. I hope we didn't cause you all too much trouble. 
I know some races even go into a state of global war when we first show up. The meeting was no trouble at all, and you did cause quite a stir, I'll say that much. There is a war being started right now, but not to worry. A few whispers in the right ears and a few false promises. Now Russia and China are slugging it out with each other, while we sit back and wait to pick off the winner with the help of NATO. If anything, the United States should be thanking you wholeheartedly. You made up enough chaos for us to essentially take over the whole planet officially. Now, what can I do for you all anyhow? I doubt there is too much you could want to ask. You've been in orbit for a month now. I'm quite sure that you can learn anything you want from our networks at this point. Ah, oh, yes, we could, but we have a bit of an unspoken rule at this point. This is the 35 planet that we've made contact with and gone to uplift now. Over time, we learned that the questions that we need to ask cannot be answered by examining data networks, no matter how top secret. And honestly, one or two species tried to counter-hack us. It is annoying. So now we isolate ourselves almost completely. We approach a planet, hijack the local media networks, and then land somewhere on the planet after requesting a meeting. Anyone who isn't a world leader is rejected and kept out of our ship. Anyway... The question. The only big one really is, uh, and I'll be honest, it'll seem odd, unnecessary even. He caught my own race and every single other one off guard completely when we found out we even needed to ask. The big question is, what is humanity's representative god? I'm sorry, uh, I think I must have misheard you. Humanity's... No, you did not mishear me, uh. <sighs> Look, I know without even looking, your race has the concept of gods. You have probably had thousands of them, at least, right? I don't mean any of those, not even a little. It would be more akin to the concept, I guess. My race has the builder, a concept deep in my species' souls. We decide to build, to craft, to design, plan, and make. It is a drive that we have always had, a concept so intrinsic to our existence that we didn't even realize it ourselves. We have the phrase, even with our species. To resist the build is to resist death. Another race, the Kath, have the explorer. They have an innate drive to discover, wander, infer, and find. Another, the Lulz, have one more akin to a concept than others. Evo, evolution, is their deity. They adapt, evolve, overcome, and move past obstacles. They don't seem to crave adaptation or evolution. It just exists to such an extent on their planet that it is their deity. It would be an ideology, drive, understanding, or concept that every human upon the planet has an understanding of at least on a fundamental level. If you really cannot think of any, then we have no other choice but then to take you off-world temporarily. In the void between worlds, sometimes stars, one will meet their god. Not any made-up mythological bullshit god that people worship that doesn't really exist, but the actual god that looks over the lot of you. So, uh, why is this important? Just humor me. Give me some time to think, Harry. This is, um, a lot. <sighs> this is...